Good morning, church. Scripture reading this morning is Psalm 34. If you would like to use the Blue Pew Bible in front of you or behind you, you can find the passage on page 463. 463. Psalm 34. Would you please rise in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word? Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life? and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is indeed a pleasure and a privilege to be able to worship with you all as we continue in the series on Summer Psalms. Um, it is good to be able to take a step back and consider what summer is like for all, most of us, uh, if not all of us. This is a time of traveling, a time of getting together with loved ones, with families, a time of vacationing, perhaps. Uh, a couple of months ago, at the beginning um, of summer vacation, during Memorial Weekend, my family and I had a chance to visit San Antonio for the very first time. And as we were there, we had the chance to celebrate my wife's birthday. And so we were looking around for a good place to eat. And we asked 
uh, you know, we asked her, what is it that you want, what you're in the mood for? And she said, Korean barbecue. So what do we do when we're traveling and looking for a good place to eat? We looked on Yelp. So we checked out Yelp and we typed in Korean barbecue and up comes a whole list of good restaurants, usually arranged by the average reviews. Uh, and so we looked at the top three or four and we would take, spend some time reading the reviews and uh, looking at some of the, the pictures to see if it's something worth checking out. And I gotta tell you, it's actually quite effective. I remember years ago when Yelp first started, they had uh, what's called a super user. If you know Yelp enough, you know what I'm talking about. It's someone who's been reviewing for quite a while. And typically I would say the super user's reviews are a little bit even more reliable or trustworthy because they've tasted and they, what they say actually carries a little bit more weight. Uh, now I think Yelp has what's called the elite squad. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means. I think it's probably the same thing. Uh, but I remember we looked at the top three. Uh, the first two looked a little interesting, but the third one was closer to where we went, so we, uh, we checked it out, and it was indeed quite good. Uh, I remember looking at the pictures and comparing to what was actually presented for us. It was pretty, pretty accurate, uh, and the food was good. We had a wonderful time, and so the review actually did its job. They gave us a concrete idea of what it's like, and therefore we were willing to actually go and try out the place. And I want to submit to you this morning that as we come to our text in Psalm 34, that that's exactly what this psalm is about. It is, if you will, a Yelp review of God and what he has done. And the author, David, is saying, you got to check him out. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is for real. He has done all these amazing things for me, and therefore he deserves your praise, your trust, your faith, your undivided attention. And therefore this psalm is an invitation to trust in the Lord. Commentators were all describe how this psalm is divided into two parts. The first 10 verses is a hymn, an invitation to come and seek out and to experience God. And the remainder of the psalm is more like a sermon where David is preaching and teaching about what God actually is like. And what he's saying to you and I is, I know what I'm talking about. I know of whom I speak because look at what he has done in my life and what happens to those who try to do evil to me. And therefore, as we read this psalm, I want you to hear the excitement in the text. I want you to sense David's passion as he composes the psalm for God. This is not an attempt to write something for the sake of money or making a living. This is not a reference to some vague struggle, but this is an authentic response to how God helped David through real life-threatening dangers. And the question for all of us is, have we tasted God's goodness? Now, you don't need to have an experience of God in order to follow him. But once you give your life to him and you surrender to him, you will experience fully his grace and his provision, his goodness. And that's what I want to encourage you with this morning, that God is good. 
And if you've never experienced it before, come. Believe in him. Follow him. For he is real. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. And he desires to be with you for the rest of your life. He desires to be your God and you to be his child. If you come this morning as a believer of Jesus Christ already, I want to ask and challenge you from this text, how has God been good to you? And do you tell people about it? In fact, is there a passion and excitement in your life, in your voice, as you share the good news of Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about a sort of general bubbliness or a, just a positive outlook on life. What Scripture is describing is a blessed assurance, an incredible confidence, knowing that no matter what happens, God is with you. And you have no lack, no fear. That type of attitude, that type of living is a marvelous testimony to the reality and the beauty and the goodness of God. And that, so as we come to this text, these are some of the questions we want to keep in our mind. But first, let's take a step back and look at the historical background to the psalm. This is one of the few psalms that actually gives us the context in its title. And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. You may be familiar with the story. David, as you know, he had been chosen by God as king, anointed by the prophet Samuel at a very young age. But he's still not king yet at this time. Saul is still king of Israel. And Saul was jealous. He was mad, determined to kill David for a variety of reasons. He knows that David has been anointed. You know, David is, in a lot of ways, the rising star. The people love him. He is successful in all that he does. He is handsome. His own daughter has been uh, married to David. He's successful in the battlefield. And he knows, Saul, that God has abandoned him. And that the Spirit of the Lord is with David. So in every way, there's reason for Saul to not only be angry, but to hate David, the one who will succeed him, the one that God has chosen. And so Saul is making every attempt to try to hunt David down, to eliminate him as a political adversary, as an object of his hatred and jealousy. And so David has been on the run from King Saul for a long time. He went to the city of Nob to pick up Goliath's sword. You remember the giant whom David slayed years ago. He picks up the Goliath's sword from the chief priest, Ahimelech. And now if you'd killed Goliath and you're walking around with his sword, where is the last place in the world you would go? Just take a step back and try to imagine. Well, that's exactly where David went, to the city of Gath, Goliath's hometown. And you may be wondering, why would he do that? Well, Scripture doesn't give us the reason. It's hard to explain, hard to tell. Was it because perhaps that's the last place in the world Saul would go looking for him? To find David in the land of the Philistines, of his former enemies? Well, it doesn't seem so, because David, when he goes in, he doesn't sneak in. He goes in right into the presence of the king of Gath, Achish, otherwise known as Abimelech. 
Rabbi Abimelech, uh, as a side note, is most likely a royal title for the king of the Philistines, much like Pharaoh would be the title of Egyptian kings or Caesar, the title of Roman emperors. Abimelech, the title of the Philistine king, whose actual name was Achish, perhaps David thought this king might be glad to have David on his side now that David was Saul's enemy. In fact, later on in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, we actually see David does, in fact, fight for the Philistines against their enemies. But whatever his reasons were, the city of Gath did not turn out to be a safe place for David. You see in verse 11 in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, the word says, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. In other words, oh, great king Achish, those ten thousands, do you remember who they were? Our people, our own flesh and blood, Philistines. And now he comes to us. And notice what the Philistines called David. They said, this is the king of the land, and all the irony that they spoke more truly than they realized. But David is still in enemy territory. He's exposed. He's in very grave danger. And in verse 12, we're told he was terrified. But that's when his survival instincts kick in. He decides to change his appearance. He allows spit to drool down his beard and to start acting like a fool, like a madman. And it worked. Because Achish basically said, I've got enough idiots already, why would I need another one? And so David was able to escape from Gath, from the Philistines. And it's out of that experience David writes Psalm 34. If you consider all that as the context to our text this morning, then I think you'll find this a marvelous and an incredible psalm. That a man on the run for his life And he's been doing this for years. A man who was anointed as the next king finds himself having to pretend to be crazy in front of his former enemies in order to just survive. He runs away from his current enemy to his former enemy. Now, for most of us, that would be a hard pill to swallow. Think about the humility that took, the shame David might have felt. And yet David is still able to write this beautiful psalm about the goodness of God. What has he done for you? And how do you respond to God's goodness? I want to share with you three biblical truths from our text this morning. First of all, God delivers those who fear him. This is how God is good. He delivers those who fear him. You notice David's range of emotions that he lists throughout the psalm. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Do you see the emotional turmoil and fear in David? Verse 5, ashamed. Verse 6, Cries and troubles. Verse 10, want and hunger. Verse 18, brokenhearted, crushed in spirit. This does not sound like a confident optimist to you and I. David was in fact desperate 
filled with dread. And he had every reason to be. He was first anointed as the king of Israel while he was a youth, but he doesn't become king until 30. Therefore, he spent the majority of about 15 to 20 years in between those two events on the run, hiding for his life, afraid, feeling responsible for those who follow him, crushed, brokenhearted, his own family taken away from time to time, has to hide in the fields and caves in enemy land. This was a desperate, distressed man. When was the last time you felt helpless and desperate? When my wife was pregnant with our first child, about six months into the pregnancy, one day she threw out her back. And at first we didn't realize what was happening. All we could tell was that she could barely move. But what was more urgent was how it seemed like it triggered some kind of early contraction. And she was suffering, she was laboring, she was in pain, she could not move. I had to help her up to the bed and she laid bedridden for a full day and a half until she tried moving and getting up again and tried to move and she couldn't and she collapsed on the floor and she said, this is killing me. My back's killing me, my body's killing me, this baby, I don't know what's happening. And so I panicked. And we panicked. And I remember picking up that phone and dialing 911. And then soon after that, when the fire truck and the ambulance arrived, and the firefighters entered our apartment, and the first thing they asked is, where is your wife? They thought that the baby had already been delivered, had come out. And when I said, no, that's not the case, they said, oh, okay. And so they said, well, we need to rushed her to the hospital. I remember driving my car, following behind the ambulance, tears streaming down my face uncontrollably. And I remember experiencing the sense of overwhelming helplessness. There's nothing that I can do. I had no idea what was going on. And I remember crying to God even as I was driving, Lord, help my wife and spare this child. Would you have mercy on us? I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. Maybe you have. Maybe it's when you first discovered your child or your parents' illness, that unexpected news. Maybe it's when you've been out of a job for an extended amount of time. You have no idea what's coming next. Perhaps it's when you're in financial troubles and you're wondering how to pay your bills or even the mortgage. Perhaps it's when your college fellowship is being mocked and persecuted or even kicked off campus for being faithful to the word of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's when you feel betrayed and have your heart crushed and broken by the one you love. To be in fear and troubles and to feel that you have no control that there's nothing you can do to have no one else to turn to except the Lord. It is in that context that David writes, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. See for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. God surrounds those who fear him with his angels. He keeps watch over those who hide in him. 
Experience how God provides for every need for those who seek Him. Even the strongest, like young lions, will get hungry and have needs. But David writes, not for those who trust in God. Our fears and troubles, delivered and gone. Our prayers, answered. Our shame, no more. And the key is found here in verse 11 in our text. Fear the Lord. You may ask, how do we come and taste the goodness of God? And the answer is, you have to first learn to fear Him. You have to trade in your fears, your shame, your desperation, your broken heart, and in return, learn to fear God. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Verse 17 and 19 talks about God delivering the righteous from their troubles and afflictions. In other words, you want to experience God's deliverance? You want to taste and see his goodness? Then obey God. Live in a way that honors him. And verses 13 to 15 fleshes that out for us by saying, keep your tongue from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. But that also means to trust in God's timing. The famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, once said, while God seldom shows up early, he is never too late. Even though David was saved from King Achish and Saul for the moment, he was still on the run, and he would remain so for years. And even though God was delivering David through every danger, proving himself faithful again and again, but the ultimate threat remained. Saul was still alive, very much in power. At the command of the military, the loyalty still a significant amount of the population. What would you do? How would you deal with that threat, that problem? Would you try to take matters into your own hands and try to eliminate Saul once and for all? My friends, there will come a day, and it is happening already around the world, when following Jesus means you'll pay with your life or at great, great cost. But God's command is to not seek vengeance, but to continue to do good. That's what fearing God means. And David, as we know, recorded in 1 Samuel, had several opportunities to kill Saul. In chapter 24 and 26, twice, David had the chance to kill him. In 24, we're told that when David and his men were hiding in a cave, lo and behold, Saul enters the cave in order to use the restroom. And in his moments of vulnerability, David's men said, take up your chance. This is God-given opportunity. He has been delivered to you. He cannot be less protected. You should kill him. And in fact, you are the next king, the rightful heir to the throne. You are the anointed one of, of God. How can you say, how can you refuse this chance? This might be God delivering him to your hands. Take up your rightful place. Strike Saul down. 
Become who you were called to be. That's the thinking of men. That's our approach. Take charge. When things are tough, when you've got no other place to go, if the opportunity presents itself, take it. Strike. Save yourself. But David resisted. He explained to his men, it is not his place to kill God's anointed one. Let God deal with his anointed one himself. That's the expression of the fear of the Lord. It's the willingness to let God deliver you his way in his time. To not sin against the Lord, even though it may appear to be the most logical, practical choice. God in his time will make all things right. He will not let sin and evil go unpunished forever. His patience is not ambivalence or weakness. Because God is good, he is patient. But because he is good, he is also just. And he will deliver those who fear him and punish those who do evil. But in his time, in his way. We all have fears and trials. And we will experience desperateness and helplessness at some point. But God will deliver us. Because he loves to save those who fear him. And those who fear God will not only do what is right, but learn to be patient. To allow God to bring justice and salvation in his time. And what could be greater than the work of justice and grace than the cross of Jesus Christ? And that brings us to the next point, the next truth in our text. And that is God redeems the unrighteous. And you see this particularly in the last section of our psalm, verses 19 to 22. I hope most of you have seen the original Star Wars trilogy, particularly the second one, uh, the return, not the return of it, the Empire Strikes Back. Arguably the one that most critics and most fans, diehard fans would say is the best of the entire um, series of Star Wars. But if you remember that one, when Empire Strikes Back, the character Luke Skywalker has a chance to train with the Jedi Master Yoda. And as he's been training, Yoda one day tells him that there is a cave. And that cave is particularly strong with a dark sign. And that you should go in there. And so Luke is ready to equip himself and arm himself with all the weapons or the lightsaber or even the blaster. And Yoda says, you don't need those. You're only going to find what you bring in with you. And Luke, being skeptical, enters fully armed. And he finds a mysterious figure, the villain Darth Vader, approaching him. And he defends himself, and he's able to strike down this figure. But the moment this figure's mask is destroyed, what's revealed is his own face. And that's when his master's words come rushing back to him. That there's actual, the ultimate darkness really found inside his own heart. And that's the amazing twist and switch we find in Psalm 34. That as we've been reading along and we've been examining the historical background, the context under which David writes this psalm, we can easily identify with the suffering, righteous David. He's the one who's been mistreated. He's the one who suffers from injustice. He's the one who fears the Lord. And so naturally, we root for him. 
and we are meant to identify with him. There's nothing wrong in doing so. We want to experience God's deliverance just as David did. So when we read in verse 16, those who do evil and the wicked and those who hate the righteous in verse 21, our first reading tells us that's not us. That's referring to Saul, the godless Philistines, the evil ones who resist, who stand against David. But then as we come into the New Testament, God turns around and switches our perspective. He reveals that we, in fact, we as readers, we are the unrighteous, and that we need to be delivered from the greatest evil of all, our sin and rebellion against God. Except we're not doing evil against David per se, but we're sinning against God himself. And the reason we know we can, indeed we must read the last section of the psalm differently, is because we were told in John 19 verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Quoting verse 20 of Psalm 34. And what John is referring to is when Jesus Christ had been crucified and when the Roman soldiers were trying to test to see if he had tr truly been dead, they pierced his side. But when they discovered he was already dead, they forgo the custom to break the prisoner's leg. And therefore the words of David in Psalm 34 are fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus was rescued from his enemies through the cross and resurrection. And now we see that Jesus is the ultimate righteous one referred to in Psalm 34. He suffered many afflictions, crucified, died on the cross for you and me. Because we're the unrighteous evil ones. And that's the good news, the gospel of Jesus that our sins forgiven, our debt paid, our penalty borne by Christ. And David writes in verse 22 that he redeems the life of his servants, that none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That is the gospel. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he was condemned for our sins. That's the kind of God we worship. That's the goodness of God that you and I can experience and taste if you learn to fear him, if you put your trust and your faith in him and in him alone. If you come to know him, you will experience this goodness to its fullest. The question is, do you? Have you tasted the goodness of his salvation? Does it fill your heart with joy and gratitude? And that leads us to our last point, the last truth that I want to highlight from our text, that God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our singing, of our exaltation. Verses 1 to 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. You know when do people usually feel like singing and celebrating? Usually it's because something amazing has happened. When the Astros won the World Series, I remember Pastor Jason going nuts. Perhaps years ago you may remember on that night when Osama bin Laden was announced that he had been killed. I remember people watching on the news, watching people pouring out onto the streets, chanting, USA, USA, USA. I remember feeling that sense of pride and a sense that justice had been served. Do you remember that? More recently, during the World Cup, in the, in the first round of qualification, when Mexico beat Germany, news reported that seismograph picked up a small earthquake in Mexico City. The moment the game ended, people were spontaneously jumping, stomping, hugging, cheering. When I found out that my grandfather, after 30, 40 years of day and night prayer for my family, that he would come to know Christ, when I found out that he did, I remember crying uncontrollably. And my child come, came up to me and said, Daddy, why are you crying? Daddy, wh why are you sad? And I had to explain to her, these are not tears of, of gloom or, or, or hurt or pain. These were tears of joy. David says in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You know, most of us would say, I will not bless the Lord in tough times, or it's, that's really hard for me to do. But for David, he's learned that regardless of his situation, he will speak well of the Lord because God saves. He saved David from Saul, from Abimelech, from Goliath, from lions and beasts again and again and again. And as scary and difficult things may seem, David reminds us that we need to still the greatness of God. Not because David is strong in his willpower or he's stubbornly optimistic, but because he has tasted the goodness of God. That God saved him and therefore he lives now with a singular focus, a confidence in his Lord. Even when things are tough, he remembers and he knows that God delivers those who fear him, that God saves, that he redeems the unrighteous like you and I. David was on the run, afraid for his life, living in foreign enemy land, and there's no promise that he'll be safe there. In fact, he has to feign insanity to not be thought of as a threat. I wonder if you would be blessing God, singing praises to him, exalting his name. I'm not sure I would. And that's the difference. I wouldn't, but David says here we should. We should praise God at all times. You might not feel like it, but that's why you need to celebrate and remember every instance of how God rescued you, healed you, provided for you, comforted, and saved you. It is why people of the people of God, the people in the nation of Israel, again and again, erected memorials and altars in the Old Testament so that they will remember what God has done. Therefore, remind ourselves 
regularly what God has done in your life. So when the, when the t- tough times arrive, we are still able to bless and praise the Lord. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Reflections on the Psalms, he writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. I love how John Piper expands on that. That in essence, what C.S. Lewis is saying, that joy isn't complete until you're able to talk about it, that when you're able to tell others about it, and you're able to praise what you really enjoy. It's, it, it feels like it's not enough if you just hold it and keep it inside. Joy must be expressed. It's like finding a great deal or hearing an amazing news, or having experienced something so powerful, so thrilling. Sharing that news, expressing joy and appreciation in a visible, tangible, audible way is what completes the enjoyment for so many of us. Is this not true? I remember right after I got engaged, uh, I found out that I had to, needed to have my wisdom tooth removed, so I asked my friend to drive me to the oral surgeon. And I remember lying down, uh, and there were, I guess, the, there, were, um, there was the sleeping gas that they were being uh, poured out throughout the entire room. And I was just lying there, and I was talking to, um, you know, to all, everyone who was in the room who were getting ready to operate on me. And the next thing you know, I, I, I just woke up. I didn't even realize I'd fallen asleep. And some time had passed. I didn't feel any pain. They're like, it's all done. You know, all your wisdom tooth has been removed. I said, oh, thank you. I said, oh, you may go. Oh, and by the way, congratulations. And then I said, what do you mean? Oh, you know, your engagement. How did you know that? And I said, you were telling us about it. <laughs> You're saying how, how you met, you know, your fiance, how you proposed. And I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> I never said anything. I would remember, and then they just started laughing, and they were chuckling, they're like, it's okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's all good. So I go out, I go to the place where you check out, and the lady there, the cashier, was said, oh, congratulations. I said, how did you know? Well, they, they told me, everyone's talking about it. The point is, I couldn't, apparently I couldn't wait to tell everyone the great news, even though I had no memory of it. Joy is not complete until it has been fully expressed. And let me tell you, Delight in the Lord. Joy in the Lord is not complete until you praise him. Until the blessing of God's name and the singing of his deeds and his celebration of his salvation is in your mouth, on your lips, at all times. Praise completes our enjoyment. That must be true for our delight in God. If God is indeed so good and you have tasted his goodness, you cannot You will not keep silent. His praise will be in your mouth continuously. Therefore, remind yourself regularly of God's deliverance. Tell others boldly of what he has done. Praise God openly, and then you'll find when tough times come, you'll have built in the godly habit of rejoicing in the Lord always. God delivers those who fear him. He may do so in his own time, Therefore, fearing him not only means to walk with God, but to also be patient and wait upon him. But the good news is he not only delivers those who fear him, but ultimately he redeems and saves all those of us who are unworthy, broken, unrighteous, evil sinners. 
through his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as a response, as we remember to sing and celebrate this goodness, let us not only do so here at church or in our gatherings in our community or in our small groups. Let us do so regularly. May his praise be always on our lips. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will shine the light of your word in our hearts and that you will speak to us and that you will be our encouragement. For those of us here, Lord, who still don't know you as their Lord and Savior, Father, we pray that you will reveal yourself to them, that you will allow them to see your beauty, they will see the truth and the gospel, that they will see their own unworthiness, their brokenness, and Lord, that they would be willing to repent, to confess you as their Lord. Father, would you do this special miracle in their lives, in their hearts? And Lord, I pray for those of us who have tasted the goodness of your salvation. Lord, would you spur us on? Would you stir up our love? Forgive us for allowing our passion, our love for you to grow cold. Forgive us for keeping our mouths silent of what you have done. Forgive us for being ungrateful of all what you have accomplished. Lord, stir this church up. Stir us up so that we are a church that testifies, that magnifies your goodness so that we become a living testimony. Thank you for what you have done for us. And we ask all these things in, your in, your son, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.